Hello, and welcome to the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine. I'm Suzanne. And I'm Amy. And this is episode 10, recording on December 2nd, 2016. Double digits. We made it to double digits. I I might, you know, I don't want to concern anybody, but I might be having an adult beverage to celebrate (laughs) while we are podcasting. It's been a week. I feel like we say that every episode now. So maybe we just have to, it being a week is the new normal for us. Is the new normal. Well, you know, I think, I think, you know, the fall is exciting because everything starts back and then the fall got more exciting. And um, <laughs> we're all still recovering from from the bad day, and <laughs> <laughs> the recent unpleasantness isn't that the what you recent call it? unpleasantness, and uh, yeah, so so a, an adult beverage sometimes sometimes helps one in the in the afternoon. If you hear me glugging during the podcast, I'm, that's that's going to be what it is. So yeah, no, we made it to double digits, yay! yay. And we made it to December, yay! That's impressive. It is. It is very exciting. So in honor of December, I, there's no transition there. We're going to talk about math. <laughs> because that's what you talk about in December. That's what you talk about in December while you're counting down the days until Santa Claus comes. Oh, nice tie-in. There you go. She completely le- made that up on the spot. We didn't plan that. <laughs> At least in some families. I want to be inclusive. Not everyone comes down to Santa Claus. And that is okay, too. Um, so we thought we'd talk about some of the math curriculums that we've had experience with. And if you are trying to pick one or maybe trying to look for a supplemental kind of math curriculum, um, hope we, hopefully we can give you some information. And I thought I'd start out with Saxon because that is one of the biggies. Yes. Certainly. And that is the math that you guys have used since your wee 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 beginnings. That's right. We have used Saxon starting in kindergarten um, all the way through Algebra 1, basically. And so for people who aren't familiar with Saxon, um, it does run. uh, uh, It runs the whole whole math curriculum through high school. Um, K through 3, the Saxon textbooks come, they're in a big spiral bound textbook. There's, there's lots of manipulatives, people, there's, there's all kinds of great little cubes you play with and, and different shaped blocks. And, um, it's a lot of fun. I like it when we get out the, uh, the, the thing where you measure weight, (laughs) the balance. (laughs) There we go. I don't think I've had enough of my adult beverage. Um, and it's in a, a script teaching format, which means that if you open up the textbook, you can probably hear me reaching. I'm reaching over my bed for my Saxon Math 3. If you open up the textbook, it actually tells you as the teacher, it's, it's for the teacher, the textbook. And it has in bold, like, this is what you're supposed to say during the lesson. It's written out the whole math lesson for you in script format. Um, some people hate that. I don't because I just read it through and then I ignore it you know, or use however much of it I, I want. But yeah, it's written in the script format. And there are consumable worksheets that you buy separately. So I have kept the one big spiral bound book that used all four. And then I had four sets of the consumable worksheets. That's um, pretty nice for people who like to resell their homeschool books too, because yes, you can resell the big guidebook without having to worry about not writing in the pages. Exactly. Exactly. And there's other ways too. like there's some things that you can, you know, you can make copies of or, or whatever. Um, and then after you get finish um, 
level three, there's a different style of textbook. Um, it starts out, it starts out Saxon five slash four, um, which is kind of a weird numbering system, but they're saying for on level fifth graders or advanced fourth graders is kind of how they're thinking it. I'm not sure why you go from three to five slash four. Anyway, seems like they're missing a level, but um, so it's five slash four through eight slash seven. And these are more traditional textbooks. They're written for the student to read. They're not written from the teacher's point of view. Um, and we've kind of gotten away from the manip manipulatives at this point. Again, there's the consumable worksheets. So what you've got at that point is you've got um, the t one textbook, which we've recycled through all four kids, the solutions manual, which we recycled through all through four kids, and then again, four sets of the consumables. And one of the, the great things, <laughs> well, great, some people think it's great, some people think it's less great. One of the things about these kind, this level of Saxon is it has all the problems. It has tons of problems. Um, each lesson uh, consists of facts practice, mental math practice, maybe a half dozen problems, uh, the new concepts part, which is actually the lesson, a lesson practice, with the concepts you've just learned, that's maybe a dozen problems, and then mixed practice, which is new, which is um, like material that you've learned up to this point, which is going to be, uh, I think it's 30 problems. Oh, wow. Plus, there's supplemental practice in the back if you need extra help. Um, and that is super intimidating. And so is the super intimidating lecture at the beginning of the Saxon textbook that says, this course is designed for people to do all of the problems. You must do all of the problems <laughs> with every lesson every day or you will fail miserably. Okay, so you don't have to do all of the problems. <laughs> Let's just do that because I think that really freaks people out. Well, um, it's, it's actually nice that they give you a lot because then you can kind of pick and choose exact ones. Exactly. So with my kids, we rarely do mental math. Um, depending on the kid, there's times when I've said, okay, I want you to do all the odd problems in the mixed practice, you know, um, or I want, you know, just, just do, you know, so you're doing half of them. You're kind of getting the range. Um, sometimes we'll take two days to do a lesson. Sometimes we'll take one day to do a lesson. It just really depends on how confident the student is with that material. And if they're not confident, then gosh, you slow it way down. You start doing all of the problems. Maybe not, maybe not like all of those in one day, but you you slow it down and you do the supplement of practice. You do whatever extra you need. So, you know, it will still work, I promise, if you pick and choose and, and consider, it, consider it a banquet. You know, consider it a cafeteria line where you can <laughs> pick the pieces that are helpful and use, useful to you in your homeschool. But do not feel like you have to do an extra 20 problems when you're convinced that your child understands that concept. They don't need to be doing busy work. Right. And you're in charge. I think as a teacher, you're really in charge of figuring out what is busy work for them and, and getting away from that. Um, and then we've only gone into Algebra 1 after that. So there's K through 3 in the spiral, brown, spiral bound. Maybe I had more of that beverage than I thought. <laughs> 5 slash 4 through 8 slash 7. And then um, Algebra 1, it has a hardback text. It looks really like just kind of a standard textbook, um, getting more away from kind of the homeschool aspect. And we have only gone a little ways into that. 
my two kids who have gotten that far, both then at that point transferred from homeschool into uh, ninth grade honors math. Which they were well prepared for. And it was fine. And it was fine. They didn't, you know, they were able to do that. That wasn't a big deal. Now, that doesn't mean that they were kind of at the top of the heap math-wise because um, the kids who are really good in math in uh, middle school, they often get jumped ahead a grade. Um, but they did fine in the the honors ninth grade math and were able to to go through to go through the math. And it wasn't a big, you know, oh, my gosh, we forgot to talk about fractions. Right. Well, that is one of the, I think, reassuring things about using a big program like Saxon, a really comprehensive program, is that you don't have to worry about, obviously, everyone has gaps in what they learn, but you don't have to worry so much that the gaps are your fault when you're using a system like Saxon. Right. I mean, because part of it is just, there are things that you can, I mean, some things make sense, do it in this order, right? A, B, C, D. But then there are other things that you can choose when you want to introduce them. Um, So what I did for my kids, we used to have one of the Georgia State standard, like eighth grade math examinations. And I don't know, they've gone through so much recently with Common Core. I don't even know. I don't think this is the exam they're doing anymore. But I bought a practice test book for the Georgia State official eighth grade math exam. Um. And then I thought that would be a good way to see if there's anything that's standard, you know, standard that's taught in the Georgia math curriculum that we might have just not gotten to yet. Um, so maybe you can look around and see if there's something like that. But uh, so we've used Saxon all the way through. I like Saxon. I recommend Saxon. The kids have all universally loved the K through uh, three books with all the manipulatives. There's there's making of calendars. There's a lot of patterns. There's um there's a lot of hands-on stuff and they've all really, yeah, they've, they've really had a good time with that. And math really has been kind of introduced positively, which is lovely. Um, it is a spiral system. That means that, uh, rather than introducing this topic and okay, you got that, move on to the next topic, got that, move on. Um, it goes round and round, right? So it's going to introduce you to a topic and topic A, and then it's going to go on to talk about topic B, and then let it, a couple lessons later, it'll swing back and go more in depth on topic A. So you're continually reinforcing what you've already learned and revisiting. I like that. Um, I think that you know some people don't. That's that's just kind of a, a preference thing. Um, I also like the fact, like I've said before, that there once you get into the the later books. Um, there are lots of problems. I like that because you can pick and choose. We have had kind of a rough transition from Saxon 3 to the 5-4 sometimes, um, just because it's such a change. It's, it's a really big change. Um, so that's maybe something to, to keep in mind. But I think the main thing I've seen kind of the knock on Saxon, and I'm also going to talk a little, you know, Singapore is one of the other big ones that you'll hear about. And there's a lot on the web You'll see if you Google like Saxon versus Singapore, there's a ton of information out there. And one time, in fact, well, I looked at Singapore when I was first getting ready because I, I have to buy two of everything, right, and decide. <laughs> so I bought some of the early Singapore stuff when I was, was looking at math curriculums for the first time. And, um, you know, it's a math curriculum. It's really not that different. It's a little bit more streamlined 
It doesn't have problems after problems after problems. So you would need to buy those supplementary problems if you thought that you would need them. It, it requires a little bit more from the teacher. It kind of expects you to know what you're talking about at different math levels, which may be something that, that works for you. Or, you know, maybe that's not your comfort area. Um, it's, I don't think it's spiral, or at least it's not as spiral as Saxon is. And in the early grades, they've got the really pretty, like, full-color textbooks. There's not a lot of manipulatives. You'd have to kind of bring that in on your own. Um, but one thing you'll see is you'll see Saxon described as, like, drill or rote learning. And you'll see Singapore described as, like, math concepts. And I get, I have, I have kind of an allergic reaction to that, to that comparison. Um, well, it's kind of insulting, really. Well, it is. And, and the problem is any good math curriculum is going to have both, right? It's going to teach you the concept. And I, I am old fashioned. I am in favor of drill. I am, you know, I mean, nobody likes to do rote learning. Nobody says, yay, rote learning. But um, you have got to, you know, in order to be able to do higher math, you have got to know your times tables inside out, upside down and in your sleep. And sometimes the best way to do that is drill. And um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I want I want a math curriculum to introduce the concept. If you're doing two plus three, you know, do it with actual things, right, so that you understand what the addition problem represents or whatever. But after that, there are certain basic math facts you just have to have down. And that was really uh, reinforced for me when I, I was trying to tutor um, a high school student who was taking algebra and she wasn't doing very well and she couldn't she couldn't even get in the problem she was doing she didn't have enough of the arithmetic scaffolding in her right. brain right she didn't know that well enough to even get to the algebra concepts so i mean it's kind of like she missed a step early on and then there's there she's never going to catch up She's never going to catch up unless somebody goes back to those beginning concepts and and she just gets them down cold. So that's to me what you're doing with drill and rote learning. You are making sure that they have an absolutely solid platform that all of the other math has to build on. Well, I think that's so interesting because I did a story on math learning for the magazine recently and one one this just blew my mind. So according to research statistics, so I mean, obviously there's truth and not truth in it. Right. The average person spends 13,000 hours doing math in their life, learning math, studying math. Wow. But one out of two adults say that they are not confident in their math skills. Right. Which right. is crazy. Like, I feel like if you spend 13,000 hours doing something, you should get to be confident in the skills that you've acquired. Well, and I feel like for so many people, it's in, it, it's, it happens early, right? It happens early. You don't get something and the class is moving on. And because you didn't get that, you're never, you, you know, that's it for you, right? I mean, you're never going to be able to to build on that unless you go back and, and reinforce those early those early concepts. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it's it's important, and, and and also the the teaching of math concepts is supposed to help with math literacy, right? Because the idea is, 
oh, we're not just having you memorize things that you don't understand. We're teaching you the, the concept. We're teaching you how it works. And that is good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I also am a little suspicious of it because so when you're talking about teaching a math concept, what you're trying to do is you're taking some, something that for some people, math is intuitive. It feels like a language they already understand. When you explain something to them, it's not like that doesn't make any sense. And their head is like, oh, okay, I see. It's almost like they knew it already. That's what having an intuitive grasp of math is. And I think when they're trying to, to really teach some of these concepts, we're trying for people who do not have that, they're trying to give them those tools, right? They're trying to say, okay, visualize it like this. Um, Singapore famously has a, has a bar system that it uses to teach a lot of the math. And I feel like this is not the kind of bar that I'm thinking it is, which I'm sadly, like, why did no one teach me math? Sad, bar? Sadly, no, sadly, no. but, um, and that's, it's good and bad, right? So, and, but, you know, Saxon also has these concept things. So what, what happens is when you're teaching a kid who is intuitive with math and they say, okay, I know what the answer is. Like, yes, you got the answer that way. I want you to get the answer this way that the book is showing you. I have spent so many hours <laughs> fighting with my kids because they're like, I know what the right answer is. And I'm like, I, I know, I know you know what the right answer is. I want you to look at this problem and at least tell me that you understand what they're trying to show you. Because what you're trying to do then is you're trying to teach a specific concept to a student that already understands it. And in my experience, they can find that very confusing because they think that, uh, you know, well, this is the way I do it. Am, am I supposed to get a different answer? Am I, I mean, it just, it feels, it can be very frustrating and irritating um, on both the teacher and the student side. Yes. If the concept that the book is trying to teach isn't what's already in the kid's head, or if the kid has jumped beyond that concept and doesn't need it broken down on those levels. I mean, if you're reading, if you're reading Charles Dickens, you don't want to spend time on phonics practice, right? And it's that kind of thing. Yeah. And so you don't want math to become irritating in that way. Um, the other problem with concepts teaching, um, I'm using it as a real overall kind of generic phrase, is, is that often there's a pet concept that the book was like, the book really loves, the book really loves, or this curriculum or this whatever. It really loves this one way of teaching this problem. If you have a kid who's not intuitive, and they use that concept, and then it still doesn't get them anywhere, then you're still stuck, right? right? You're still stuck. And, and so I'm not saying that, that, I mean, I think Singapore is a great curriculum. I think people going into it, you know, get, get your hands on it, look at it, make sure you feel comfortable teaching that. And then be prepared, whether you use Singapore, whether you use Saxon, be prepared to kind of look for other curriculums or look for other ways for things to be taught if you run into a brick wall. Yes. And I mean, I think almost all of us run into a brick wall at some point or another, some concept mm -hmm. or other. Even really math smart kids, kids who naturally get math, will often hit a block where there's something that they struggle with. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's the time to start looking outside your main curriculum. And to start looking for other ones that can be more supplementary or things that you can, you know, kind of go in and out of. Right. Well, we actually, um, when I first started 
homeschooling. Suzanne was so nice. She let me come over to her house and look at her bookcases. And she explained <laughs> teaching homeschool math to me. And she, I, I will never forget how nice she was and how thorough she was. She let me flip through all her math books that she had. And I, I scarred you for life, I'm yeah, sure. I had all the books. It, I did. It was intimidating, I will admit. Like, I came home feeling like, um, like I did not have enough books. And I've never <laughs> felt that way in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, we did end up using Saxon with my daughter, but we also used um, Life of Fred, mm -hmm. which is one of those supplementary things that you're talking about. Um, if you don't know Life of Fred, it's sort of, it's a, it's a series of math books, but instead of being kind of a traditional math program where you learn a concept and you do practice problems. It's a series of stories about this five-year-old math genius named Fred and his adventures. And through those adventures, the author introduces mathematical concepts. Um, the stories are really silly. I mean, Fred is five, but he teaches at a college. He goes on dude ranch vacations. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, but in a fun way. Um, and at the end of each story, there are a handful, I mean, literally maybe six or seven practice problems that you work on to solve that relate to the concepts in the story, usually. But sometimes they might relate to concepts that you learned in previous stories or even in previous books. So it's a really fun, engaging way to study math. Both my kids, my son, who's very, very mathy, and my daughter, who would rather do almost anything than math, really enjoy Life of Fred. Um, and it is great for making math feel like something that you don't hate doing. For my daughter, that's been really important. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure how thorough it is. I'm not sure if it's if it would work. as a, People use it as a standalone curriculum, so I guess it does. But I'm not sure that I would use it as a standalone. Right. Well, and you also have got to think about what your goals are. Right. You know, right? I mean, are you, so my goal when I started out in, in homeschool, I've said this before, is that all my kids were going to take calculus in high school. And partly that's because of my own kind of experience with math and science. And, um, and I have backed off that. And I'm now more comfortable with like, you know what, they'll get as much math as, as they get. But also, I did know that I was going to be, you know, at some point we decided they'll be joining the public school world in ninth grade. So I knew they had to be ready to take that on. Um, if you're homeschooling all the way through, then you need to be thinking about, you know, are you, are you looking at college? What kind of math, you know, are you thinking of a, a liberal arts degree? Are you going into, you know, you want to go into a STEM field? Your goals are going to be different based on that. Um, but I have heard, I had, I also have heard really great things about life of Fred. That really seems to be a lifesaver for a lot of people when, Again, the, the traditional math texts, texts are maybe teaching something in the same way over and over and over, and that way isn't working for you, right. and you need a fresh perspective. Well, I've we, really heard great things about it. We really do enjoy it. It is really a fun math alternative. Mm -hmm. um, we also used, um, with my son, who, who again loves math, we used Miquan math, which goes through elementary, sort of like from, from like, I don't want to say preschool because who does math in preschool, but like preschool age kind of stuff. You do preschool math. You do preschool. Okay. This is preschool math. Preschool math is your calendar stuff. 
right. looking at clock patterns. Preschool math is so much fun. It is fun. I, <laughs> I just, I feel weird saying preschool math. It seems like, I, I think this push that we have, I know we've talked about this, but this push that we have to make everyone learn everything earlier I, earlier. I I, I agree. So I'm like, no preschool math. but No, preschool math should be stuff like, okay, if you have a blue bead and a red bead and a blue bead and a red bead, what bead do you think is going to be next? Yes, exactly. And that this, should be That is very math. much what this is. So mm-hmm. Mequon Math is the program that we used. Um, and, and we loved it. Um, it's, I think it's a, it's a great math program. Um, it's, it introduces math concepts and notations in this very practical, hands-on way. I guess, as with Saxon, there are lots of manipulatives. But what's interesting is there are almost no words or instructions at all in the student oh, wow. book. So it kind of leaves it to students to figure out as they go. Oh, interesting. Uh, there's a teacher's manual, which I think the parent really needs to read because it's such a completely, for me at least, it was such a completely different approach from any way that I'd ever taught or studied math. Uh-huh. Um, and it it did take some sort of adjustment for me to get the hang of it. But once we did, it was great. The only problem with it is that it only goes to about third grade. So when you finish with right. it, you're back at the beginning trying to figure out what math should we do? <laughs> Right. I mean, that, that again, that's a transi- tran- transition in Saxon, too, where they transition to a new format. Um, I don't know what this transition in Singapore is like at that age, but that seems to be about the about the time. I feel like that's a really transitional age. I think we've talked before about mm-hmm. how you hit bumps in homeschooling. And I think that bump from like early to mid elementary, the third grade roadblock, I think is a very real thing. That may have been our 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 biggest bump. For me, that's that's really the age where the kids stopped being excited about, yay, I get to do lessons with mom. And, you know, I could be doing anything else. <laughs> I have so many other fun things in this house I could be doing. So, yeah, I think that's, and I think part of it is because you are, you are also making that transition in a lot of subjects to requiring more independent work. Yeah. Maybe requiring is not the right word. It's It's natural at that time. That is what is kind of happening. You've taught them to do math. You've taught them how to write and how to read. And now they're doing more of that themselves. Right. It's very logical, but it definitely is a big change. And it's more work. I mean, at least in our homeschool, there was actual, more actual work that I was requiring of them. The material got more difficult. Um, There was more stuff they didn't understand. You know, it just got harder uh, just because you're leveling up. So we were sad because we really loved Miquan and there doesn't seem to be an equivalent of it as you get older. What we're using now is um, Beast Academy, okay, which is from The Art of Problem Solving. Are you familiar with The Art of Problem I've, Solving? I don't think I've, I've done that. So it's sort of like nerdy math, you know, it's like uh, math for people who like math. And uh-huh. Beast Academy is really fun. It's, it's a comic book format. Okay. And the problems are... I don't want to say like challenging because I don't know that they're more challenging, but they really focus on interesting problems. It's not so much a drill as it is like figuring out how to solve a problem. Okay. So again, it's something that we use with something else where there's more drill and reinforcement, um, but, it, but it's pretty fun. We don't like it as much as Miquan, and I don't know that it would be a good fit for a kid who wasn't kind of math confident. Because, right. like I say, it, it makes you 
it encourages you to figure things out. And that'd be really frustrating if you're not kind of naturally good at figuring things out mathematically. Right. right. And if you're also not kind of seeing the direction that it's going. Yes. You know, um, yeah. And usually well, like Khan Academy. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That, that, I did not use Khan Academy. You know, when we started, Khan Academy was just, just beginning to be out there in the world. And I was uh, talking to another uh, homeschooler the other day, and she was talking, a homeschool student, and um, she was talking about using Khan Academy. And I went and looked at it afterwards. I had not realized how much resources are up there now. They have full math curriculum from, yeah. you know, preschool through high school and into college with um, uh, divided by topics or by grade level with practice problems that, you know, you can track your progress. You can, you know, there, there are the lectures to explain things. You go through the test and you can either see if, you know, if you, it'll give you immediate feedback on whether your answer is correct or not. And then if you need help, you can get a hint or you can go to, you know, go watch the appropriate video. I am so impressed, really. And I, I, if I was starting now, I would seriously look at um, Khan Academy. It's free. <laughs> Yay. So, our I mean, price. Huh? Our favorite, favorite price. Our free. favorite price. I mean, so I, I really think it's a great option. I encourage you to go look at it. I think that if I was going to do it with, now, my kids always love, they'd rather do something on the computer than do it with me. Um, so that would be good for them. But also, I mean, in the early years, like K123, I mean, I don't know that I want to give up all the manipulatives. I don't want to give up, you know, oh, we're, you're pouring things, right? You're, you're, you're pouring, you're testing one half cup of liquid, you're practicing fractions by pouring things, you're, you're building things, you're making trains of stuffed animals across the floor, you're setting up your own little shop in the kitchen, practicing giving change. You know, you can't get that through a computer screen. Yeah. So, I mean, paired with Miquan or paired with, you know, come some of the fun stuff out of Saxon, I think that that Khan Academy would be a great choice. It's, um, I think it would also be a great choice alongside something like what you're talking about, Beast Academy or something like, okay, let's come at it from a different perspective, maybe a more traditional math perspective and just check. Let's just make sure, you know, do you really have the concept? Do you, are you able to, to try all these different problems with it? That kind of thing. So I really encourage people to, to check that out. Um, I think it's great. I'm shocked how much they use it in the school. Yeah, my mom who teaches third grade, her class has an account. She can send yeah. them specific videos or practice things. It's very cool. Yeah, so that's that's a really that's a really nice nice option to have out there. But basically, if you can as much as you can, I think take a look at the curriculums, right? Like I I just spent a long time telling you how I like Saxon better than Singapore. That doesn't mean Singapore is a bad curriculum. It just means that for my style, I felt more comfortable with one over the other. And since so many people, um, like Amy said, so many people are coming into this not feeling confident in math. And, and I've talked about this before. This is a red button topic for me because it's often women in particular. Yes who almost, I mean, who as adults who are extremely successful in all other areas of their life, almost, almost say it with pride that they couldn't balance a checkbook, which is fine because nobody balances checkbooks anymore because nobody has checkbooks. But, um, you know, it's, it's really 
disturbing to me how many of us don't feel confident and who are math illiterate to a really kind of surprising degree. I think the best thing that we can do as parents in that situation is not to pass that along to the younger generation. So if you feel that way personally, either you need to find something that you feel really good and really confident about so that you can, you know, so that you can do math with confidence. You can do math as something that it's fun and, hey, this is cool. I mean, my kids don't love math, but they know I love algebra, right? And I don't love all kinds of math. But there's certain problems I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. Let me show you how to do this, right? You need to have that kind of excitement about math if and you can. I will say, I mean, I have found that there are places where I felt more and less confident in my mm-hmm. own math abilities. Mm-hmm. And going back as an adult and reading the descriptions and like looking at the problems, some things that didn't make sense to me when I was 12 totally make sense to me now. Right. And it's actually kind of empowering. You're kind of like, wow, I actually do get this. I'm actually pretty good at math. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's, you know, and if you, yeah, that's, that's a great experience. Um, But if you really, if you can't find that, if you can't find that place, then, you know, maybe consider, consider getting help, right? Consider tutoring, consider um, as much as possible. Maybe once you get out of the area that you're comfortable with, um, looking into more of the independent learning, Khan Academy, or, or some of the books that really kind of ask the student to do it on their own or with a little bit of help. Because I just think the best thing we can do is try to not continue to pass down the math illiteracy and the math phobia from one generation to the next. And, and there's no reason to, because there's so yeah. many good resources that, right. I mean, you can really help your kids learn math in a way that they'll use their whole lives. That's right. So you need to find a curriculum that not only you think is going to work for your kids, but that is going to work for you so that you can present it with confidence and with excitement as much as you can. I know. (laughs) I feel like this is a really hard sell, (laughs) (laughs) but really it can be fun. (laughs) All right. I think that's, that's all I had to say on math. How about you? Uh, I, I think that's good. I think if you are one of the one out of two people who don't feel confident teaching math, maybe it's kind of reassuring to realize that every other person you meet is also one of those people. Right. Right. And, it's a real thing. And yeah. So, but but teaching math is not as hard as we all think that it's going to be. No. And it's, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where well, I always say fortunate, I don't know if fortunate or not, but I was, I am glad that I was able to start homeschooling from the very beginning, right? I went in our first, was that first podcast? Are we talking about, what about calculus? Yes. <laughs> it's a lot nicer if you can dive in with an excited kid talking about red beads and blue beads and putting, you know, stuffed animals on trains than if you're diving in at a different level. So, you know, just be aware of your own, your own feelings and your own concerns and take those into account too. Yes. But you will find a way, I promise. Absolutely. And I'll just point out for the record, as we like to point out, Suzanne's son got into Georgia Tech, so she knows what she's talking about. (laughs) And we think he's still going to be there after his first semester. So (laughs) I don't want to talk too soon. We we haven't had finals yet, but we think he's still going to be there. So, yeah, it's all good. All right. So what what have you been doing, Amy, when you haven't been, been teaching math? 
well, for I, rediscovering the joy of math. I have to say that I, I haven't been teaching math. We've taken the last two weeks off for Thanksgiving. So. Okay, so we took the week off for Thanksgiving, and then last week, the only thing we did was math. Uh-huh. Because that's our minimum day. We made brownies. That's kind of math. That's math? Yeah. That's absolutely homeschooling math. No, sure. but... Um, <laughs> Okay, so Suzanne and I... But you I... have to double the batch <laughs> for it to be homeschool. Sorry, I'm distracted by the brownies. No, no, brownies are the best. We should all be distracted by brownies That's all right. the time. Um, no, but... So apparently when I'm feeling like the world is overwhelming and things are just a little bit too much for me, I want to watch more British television. <laughs> yes. I ended up subscribing to Acorn. Do you know what this is? I have heard about it, but I don't have a subscription. So it's a, it's a, I got, I get mine through Amazon Prime. It's a oh. British streaming kind of network. It shows all these programs that are on the BBC and British television. Uh-huh. Um, and they've had, they have a couple of um, Agatha Christie miniseries, yeah, adaptations yeah. of Agatha Christie miniseries. Yeah. So I've watched them. And then there were none, which I thought was a gorgeous adaptation. Oh, that's the most recent one? That's the one that was fairly, like, last year or this I year? I think so. It was for Agatha Christie's 100th birthday. Okay. They did okay. Um, Partners in Crime, which I have in my queue, but I haven't watched yet. Oh, I love that book. Yes. I love Tommy and Tuppence. They don't get enough love. <laughs> I'm very excited to watch that. But they also have... Um, uh, and then there were none, which many people have made movie adaptations of, right. but, which is still like such an interesting kind of text to play with. Yeah. It's always interesting to see how different generations kind of interpret it. So it's worth watching. But interestingly, I have also discovered this show um, that I guess is on the BBC or BBC One or some some British television network, which is actually a sitcom about a homeschooling family in Wolverton in England. It's called Raised by Wolves. Oh, that's promising. It's, okay, first of all, let me say, I'll just clarify, it, it really does embrace pretty much every negative stereotype about homeschooling <laughs> out there. I mean, the kids are very socially awkward. The mom's a little bit crazy and controlling. Um, but that said, it's freaking hilarious. And I have, <laughs> I have watched it. I sit there and I think I should not be watching this. This is not the show I should be watching. I should not be laughing at this. But I am just sitting here cracking up watching this. Oh it my has gosh. been um, a great gift <laughs> during these troubling times. <laughs> during troubling times. Oh, my gosh. I'll have to check that out. No, they show on Acorn. Do they show like BBC America stuff? Do they have like Doctor Who and all the big ones? Or is it just the stuff that isn't well, so there? I don't know how it's set up on Amazon. Doctor Who is on part of Amazon Prime. That's true. Right. So it doesn't show up on Acorn. I don't okay. know if you just subscribed to Acorn, not via Amazon, if you would get Doctor Who. Oh, interesting. Okay. There are clearly wheels within wheels. I'll have to but figure all this out. Inspector Morse. Oh. Now that I'm finished with Inspector Lewis, I've been going back and watching Little Baby and Inspector Lewis. I guess when he was Detective Lewis um, on Inspector Morris. He well, didn't need to shave Suzanne. He's a baby. <laughs> I know. He's adorable. What about like all the Shakespeare adaptations that they show in great performances here, except not on the Atlanta PBS station, because the Atlanta PBS station shows Friday night high school football instead of great performances. They have some of them and some not. I'm not sure how okay. they pick what they do and don't end up okay. happening. But they, but they have some great uh, British procedurals 
Okay. And lots and lots of detective mysteries and the Agatha Raisin mysteries. Oh, I'm, I haven't heard of her. Which are kind of charming. And I'm hoping that they're going to have the new Bronte series <sighs> coming out this, There's a this, this Bronte month. Bronte series? Yes, the BBC is doing a little Bronte I have been, you know, I've been on this Bronte thing. Well, that's why I'm saying I hope that they're going to have it on Acorn. If they do, you'll have to come over and watch it. I will. I'm going to just have to. Maybe that's my Christmas present. We could do a live broadcast. Maybe I can. I'm sure everyone would tune into that. (laughs) I'm sure that would be that would be very. Now, does stuff come on, come on, and come off like Netflix, or is it pretty much stay on mostly? I've only had it for a few weeks, so I really. Amy, I need answers. I'm sorry. I feel like your research is letting me down. It is at this point. It is. I'm a bad, bad person. Okay. Okay, but definitely, let's see for the Bronte for the Bronte series. So that I have been on a Bronte kick lately, as you know, because you've had to hear me talk about it a Uh, lot. I would say that like the last 20 years of my life have kind of been a Bronte kick. So I'm in. <laughs> See, the thing is, I'm actually not hugely, I'm not the Bronte girl. I am the Austin girl, right? I'm not the Bronte girl. I say, except I really love Jane Eyre. Well, and I actually think poor Anne doesn't get nearly enough, enough love. Actually, I'm just not an Emily girl. Well, I think that that's legitimate. I mean, Wuthering Heights is my least favorite book of all time, period, the end. I hate it. So, um, so I, I went on a whole Bronte thing and, uh, I reread everything except Wuthering Heights and, but I reread some good ones. Um, there's one, I just, I'm going to have to write uh, something up for it for the website, but, uh, Jane Steele about, about a, um, a, a, a character and she's in the time of Jane Eyre and her favorite book is Jane Eyre and her tagline is reader. I murdered him. (laughs) And I'm just going to just going to leave that there. But one thing that I read after I went on this Bronte kick, um, because, you know, it's the romantics. They're all off on the moors communing with nature or whatever the heck they did out there. I read um, Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon. I think I've got the author's name right. And it's a it's a biography of uh, Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter, Mary Shelley. And it's told in alternating chapters. So she starts at the beginning of both of their lives, and we get a chapter of Mary Wollstonecraft, and then we get a chapter of Mary Shelley. And it's a little bit hard to keep for me to keep everybody straight, but I actually think it works really well. And I was kind of thinking it as an extension of the whole Bronte thing, right? Because we are getting into the beginning with Shelley and all of them. We're, we're, we're creating the romantics, essentially. Right. But... What I what I didn't realize going in and what I found really, really inspiring was, you know, the feminist side of it. Wollstonecraft, I don't know much about the history of feminism. This inspired me to learn more. Um, but I mean, certainly with her vindication of the rights of women, she is a major player um, back in the early days. And seeing what the two of them were able to accomplish and able to pass down through the generations under just you know, legal oppression and cultural oppression. And I mean, this is a time when, okay, so in the Bronte kick, I read Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, which is uh, a wife who runs away from an abusive husband. And she has to hide because, you know, he legally has, he legally has ownership of her. Right. Really. Yeah. You could lock your wife in a room and starve her to death. And, that was not illegal um, at the time. And Wollstonecraft 
actually <laughs> I lived through that with her sister where she helped her sister escape an abusive husband, you know, in the middle of the night and hid her so that she wouldn't have to return. And I, it, it is, you know, I can read the facts of that all day long, but I cannot, it's very hard for me to imagine. No, well, what, and I mean, she had to leave her children behind because her yes. husband also owns the children. Yeah, the husband owns the children, which is how they kept the wives with, you know, but it's just the, you know, the husband, not only did he own all of your property, not only did, you know, as a married woman, you not have any access to any of your own, you did not have property, um, but he actually essentially owned your physical body and he could do whatever he wanted with you, including, include starve you to death, lock you up, have you committed or, um, or just, you know, beat you to death. It's really terrifying. And in that world, this is a woman, these are two women who, who repeatedly advocated for that, you know, women are human beings. Women are creatives. Women, we you know women can do what, what, men do unfortunately some of the men in their lives were terrible (laughs) percy we're looking at you oh my (laughs) god well because you know because of the bondage of marriage these women were looking at like free love as as a way of you know love outside marriage of a way of kind of kind of escaping some of those legal you know some of the problems okay that's fine but then the guys are all like Free love, this is awesome. Oh, you got pregnant, now have a child to take care of? Bye. You know, I mean, it's that it's that kind of thing, unfortunately. Right. It, the odds were very stacked against women. Right. But I just, reading this book right now, when I am concerned about what's happening to feminism in America, when I am concerned about what will be happening over the next four years. As I um, think anyone who is a woman or who has a daughter must Mm -hmm. be a little right now. Yeah. Um, I just, I found it, you know, I mean, I guess I could have gone one way of been kind of sad about, Oh, we haven't fixed all this yet, but I really didn't feel that. I really felt the other way. Like, okay, if you could show them what the world is like now, first of all, it really is so much better. (laughs) And second of all, if they can survive and create successful, meaningful, you know, wonderful lives under that level of oppression, then, um, then yeah, then we can, then we can come together and, and work for the world that we want to have. Uh, so that really has inspired me because I have not, um, I haven't read a lot of, I mean, I've always considered myself a feminist. One day I'll tell you my, my second grade birth of feminism story, but, um, it's a good story. I can't wait. It involves singing though. And you don't want that. So, um, so I really am trying going to try to put together kind of my own like history of feminism 101 and and read both about and both past writings and about past feminists and then also kind of try to try to do a better job of keeping up with the current writings. And on that side I have to recommend to everybody um Shrill by Lindy West. It's a collection of essays. Um she has been writing online um, she calls herself, she's a self-described, you know, fat woman. She writes a lot about um, body acceptance and body positivity, which I find to be really relevant for all women, whether, yes. whatever size you are, right? Because it's all about my body belongs to me and I get to make decisions about it and you do not get to control it. And that's relevant for all women. And um, 
<coughs> excuse me, I, I got it from the library. I read it. I liked it so much that I got a copy for the house so my teenage daughters could read it. Um, it does talk about some serious subjects. One of the essays is on the abortion that she had. And um, I just, I just, it's talking about things in a way that I did not think of them when I was a teenager. And even now, it's still kind of a new, a new perspective for me. So anyway, past and current feminism, inspirational to get me through the next four years. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> Amen. Oh, and then I have to tell you about my, my, super, my super secret weapon that I created to go along with that. Um, Amy got to see it the other day. It is the bag of justice. And I, we, we take a picture, <laughs> Suzanne, so that we can put it up because I feel like words cannot do justice. <laughs> so I had this. So, okay. So I went online and I was like, okay, I have to, um, I have to buy t-shirts like to wear all the time, or I'm inspired by my friend who wears a black, uh, lives matter pen. And, um, I just wanted to be more visible about some of my beliefs and getting them out there. And okay, t-shirts are really expensive. <laughs> so, so I had this idea, I had this old like shoulder bag that's falling apart in my closet. So I went online and I bought bumper stickers, um, coexist, Black Lives Matter, Immigration Created America. Ask and me about my feminist agenda. That's, that's yeah. But I have one slide that's all the feminists. So it's ask me about my <laughs> feminist agenda. Angry liberal feminist killjoy with like flowers. Yay. And smash the patriarchy. And my husband is fine. He's like, so what is your feminist agenda? And it's, I'm like, it's right here. It's smash the patriarchy. Are you not paying attention? Yeah, it's um, pretty. It's a great bag. It's so, so anyway, so we will put, this is my bag of justice. And it just cheered me up so enormously to create my bag of justice. Unfortunately, it really was disintegrating. And I thought it was bad symbolism if my bag of justice disintegrated. Oh. <laughs> but it turns out my friend, shout out to Ellen, who was the inspiration for all of this, um, is also a whiz with tape and things that hold other things together. So she got out her box of holding things together. And she is repairing my my bag of justice so that it can last at least four years. Well, now I love Ellen even more. I know. I know. She's pretty awesome. So anyway. I, I hope it only has to last four years. Is that too political? <laughs> Should I not say that? <laughs> no, because no, not because it's political, but because that's depressing. And that is that is pessimist talk. And we okay. will we will try to be optimists. All right. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> really hard. Ah, <sighs> yeah. So I know I cheated. I talked about books then. That's okay. Because now we're going to talk about a specific book. We're going to talk about the book that you have the long, long list on your reading list that you've had for so many years that you finally read, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Yeah, I finally read To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> I have had three of my kids read it, like as part of their homeschool curriculum, and I hadn't read it yet. <laughs> that makes and they it funnier. Yeah, they were not okay with that. I was like, oh, well, if I tell my oldest to read it, then I'll read it. And then I kind of didn't. Well, and then if you didn't read it with the oldest, you couldn't read it with the next one. That would be favoritism. Well, I, I, she, I could have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to help you here. But it turns, out, it turns out, well, and I, you know, the reason I didn't read, there's two reasons. One reason is that I don't like Southern literature. I don't. Everybody's sweaty all the time. They're languid. They're languid and sweaty and they talk slow and they think slow and they all have a crazy person in the attic. 
And I just, I just, it not, no, it just, it does nothing for me. Um, right. But I, in all fairness, Harper Lee and William Faulkner are pretty different writers. You are a hundred percent correct. You are a hundred percent correct. That if, if she's at all, like, I mean, you know, she's not, she's definitely not Southern Gothic. Right. I'm not going to make you read Absalom, Absalom. Now I, now I know, and I promise I'm not going to make you read it. I know, but, she, but they do have the crazy person in the house. It's true. The house and they all go, door. they all go barefoot and talk about how many times they have to take a bath and sit around and be sweaty because it's too hot. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so yeah. It is um, Alabama, but. <laughs> I know. I just don't like Southern literature. And, and then the other thing, and this is a reason I'm not, I'm not at all. Well, I'm not proud of not liking Southern literature. It's just the way it is. But um, I didn't read it because I knew it was going to be hard. I mean, that it was going to be a hard topic. I knew what happened, more or less. Um, but I I just was like, that doesn't sound like a, a fun book to read. And right, so- it feels a little bit like a very special episode of Southern <laughs> literature. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. I mean, up against that is that I know so many people, both big readers and people who are not overall big readers, who have this as their favorite book of all time. I mean, it's got to be... It's got to be America's favorite work of literature, don't you think? I mean, maybe, you know, I think I think it's got to be in the top five for one of the nominations for like the great American novel. Because almost everyone has read it or or seen the movie or has some idea of what it's about. I think there are not many American books that you can say that about. I mean, certainly not The Scarlet Letter or... Right. I mean, the other contenders, I mean, there are certainly other contenders, but I don't, I think more people have loved, read and loved Mockingbird than, I mean, Catcher in the Rye may be the, may be kind of the runner up to the book that people really connect with. Not only do they, that everybody kind of, kind you know, of loves, right? I it has a say, universal. Suzanne, I find that my, my kids, my students, the people that I know who are like what I think of as prime Catcher in the Rye age, they do not like it. I don't like Catcher in the Rye. I, yeah, I know. I, I liked it when I read it. Maybe I, well, I hit I exactly the right window of time. I didn't read it at the right age. And now I, my daughter went to read it. I was like, you should read it now. You're 15. Go read it now. If you don't leave, this is the best chance for you to like it. And she's like, he was just so angry and so whiny. And, you know, I have to put up with boys at high school like that all the time. So <laughs> she was not impressed. <laughs> Apparently it's not. But To Kill a Mockingbird is um, is a is a good a good story. The story is good. Well, and I don't I don't I'm probably the first person to be insightful enough to say this, but it's it's a pretty good novel. I mean, <laughs> should we summarize it? Are there people out there who who haven't read To Kill you, a Mockingbird? I, I find it difficult to believe that in 2016 there are any adults who haven't read To Kill a Mockingbird, but maybe, Amy, maybe you should go ahead and summarize it just, just a little bit. So it's the story about a, a girl named Scout who's growing up in this small town in Alabama called Maycomb. Um, it's It starts out as sort of just a childhood adventure type book, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. And yeah, then, very much. Her going to school, who playing with her older brother and their best friend. Yes. Yeah. And they have this crazy neighbor. I mean, really, it's a Southern book. So, like, he really is a crazy neighbor. He's yes. like a crazy shy. <laughs> he's not in the attic, but he's there. Um, then, I guess, like, halfway through the book, her dad, who's an attorney, takes the case of a black man who's been accused of raping a white woman. 
and we follow sort of the machinations of justice, which is, is very not justice what we would like to think of as justice. Right. It becomes kind of a, it shifts and becomes kind of a, a courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fair? I think that's true. I and mean, we know from the beginning that the man is not guilty. Right. He and did not do it. We also kind of, I mean, it, this is where it would have been interesting to read it, for me to read it as a young person, not knowing what's going to happen next. Right. As an adult, I think both because I've just, I, I was spoiled about, you know, I was spoiled. It's kind of silly talking about being spoiled. I knew basically the storyline. And just, I think, as being an adult in the world and knowing my history, I knew how it was going to turn out. But it would have been interesting to read it as a young person. Well, and for me, it was horrifying. Even when it, it was hor- happening, I yeah. couldn't believe that that was what happened. I felt, I, th- I think I must have felt very much as as Jim in the book felt. Mm-hmm. Um, because Scout is also upset, but I, I really... I, rereading it I realize how much more I identify with with Jim well Um, Scout is just observing it Scout is just watching Jim it's really almost I mean I talk about it as a coming of age story for Scout but in a way it's really more coming of age for Jim yes because he is he's Scout's older brother he's watching the trial and this is where he begins to understand some things about his community and some things about justice and some things that he believed about the world are not true and it is extraordinarily painful to read. It, yeah. It is. It is. It is. And, and I felt that way reading it. At, I think I read it for the first time, um, maybe, gosh, like in sixth grade or something. So, mm-hmm. I mean, many years ago, sadly, many years yeah. ago. And I, I couldn't believe what happened. Yeah. I mean, it was. I was shocked because, I mean, I grew up in a small southern town. I identified with a lot of the kind of small town humor that you get at the beginning of the book. And then to have it shift into something that's really quite horrific. It was so right, cause, scary. Well, cause those were my neighbors. Those were people I grew up with. Because what, what goes on is despite dis, despite him kind of being obviously innocent, the, the white jury convicts the black man and then he goes to jail and then he's shot trying to escape because he doesn't believe, I mean, he's almost lynched, yes. but he isn't, um, which is glad I don't, I'm, I'm, I was, I, it's very hard to read about. <laughs> it was I, anyway. Well, when it, that group is gathered, yeah. I mean, that's just, it's scary. And then ultimately, but, but Atticus scout and Jem's father makes enemies in the town for his, his defense of Tom, the black man. And uh, one of those people attacks um, Jim and Scout at the end, but they're both fine. That was one reason I didn't read the book for a long time. The kids are fine. Yes. <laughs> you can read it. It's okay. The kids are fine. I'm it's not okay. I'm emotionally but the... scarred by the incidents that led up to it. <laughs> right. Right. But the kids are fine at the end of the book. Um, I really, I really, it's a good book. I mean, it really is. A, I mean, this is not shocking to anyone at this point, but it really is a good novel. It is funny. You were the first person who told me how funny it was, and it is. It's delightful. Um, the world building of Maycomb is wonderful. Miss Maudie is my favorite character, and I would just read like five books on her. Don't you love to think that Scout grows up to be just like her? That's like my secret wish. <laughs> Well, I think Scout's going to end up, I want Scout to get an education and get into the big city, get the heck out of Maycomb, Alabama is what I want for Scout. But 
maybe some of my biases are coming are coming into that. But I want to say, I, I will pause and, and interject that I never actually want to know what happens to Scout. I have no intention of reading to Ghost Out of Watchmen. Isn't Ghost Out of Watchmen a prequel, though? Has, Isn't it set before? It is. You're right. But Scout's I mean, still telling the story. I also have no intention of reading Ghost Out of Watchmen, but, um, or Go Tell a Watchmen, or Go go Kill a... I don't know what it is. <laughs> go Kill a Mocking Watchmen. Don't I don't Kill know. a Watchmen. Don't kill a watchman. So I think, but I, but I have, okay. So I wrote this all down. I feel like I've been talking a lot this time around and I don't exactly have a rant, but it might be rant adjacent. Um, and it's my issues that I, that I ended up having, that I ended up struggling with during the whole book is not the novel itself, but it's with this kind of culture and mythology around the book. You know, like I said, I've heard from so many people that it's their favorite book. And also what I hear over and over and over again is Atticus Finch, the lawyer, the great American hero, the icon, specifically the icon of the good white man fighting racism. And, okay, so going in, reading it now, I already have a few issues, right? I already have a few issues. I've actually read some essays. Really, there's some great essays online. Um, I think the two I, I read were written by black women talking about how maybe we need to adjust our perceptions of to kill a to kill a mockingbird as the great American novel about racism. I mean, we've got some problems going in first, right? We've got the white savior problem. If Atticus Finch is indeed the white savior, we've got um, the problem that this novel about racism is written by a white woman and focuses on white children and specifically how sad it is for these poor white children to learn about racism, which is an interesting place to focus. Right. <laughs> but that's what the book is about. I mean, that's what the book is about. It's a coming of age novel and it's about Scout and it's, you know, and all that. But anyway, so there's all this, this culture around it. And so going into the book, I kind of had maybe a little chip on my shoulder about that. And what I found was I kept running into conflicts between Atticus the icon and Atticus the character. Because I really like Atticus, the character. I think he is a good man. I think he's a great father. I think he's a decent person. He has principles. He has integrity. And when he is put into a difficult situation, he adheres to his principles instead of taking the easy way out. Yeah. He even puts himself in harm's way. That said, if that's our bar for the icon of the good white person fighting racism, we need to we need to up it a little. That's a pretty low bar. I mean, Atticus basically in the book is saying, hey, maybe let's not murder black people who haven't committed the crime that we're accusing them of. Right. That's it. He's not he we have no evidence that he fights for. I mean, he's not out there fighting for economic opportunity. He's not fighting for educational opportunity. He is not trying to change the world he believes in. I mean, that he lives in. He just believes in law and that we shouldn't flat out murder black people. He doesn't use the N-word, but all of his, all of the other, quote, good men in town, the other two or three good white men that we see, the sheriff, the, um, the editor of the newspaper, they are pretty horrifically racist. Right. They just also believe that you don't have, you shouldn't go around murdering people for no reason. And really the book doesn't give us any indication that Atticus himself, aside from not using the N-word, we don't know that he's not as racist as those men. He just, 
is a good person and he treats people kindly. Um, right. Well, I mean, he even says, and I think that this is problematic for a lot of readers, he says at, at some point earlier in the book that the KKK isn't a racist organization, that it was a political organization. Right. Well, he, at one point, you know, he tells Scout not to use the N-word. And my daughter brought this up and she said, and Scout says, why? And he says, well, it's just common. And she said when she was reading the book, she was like, Atticus, come on. <laughs> You know, I mean, so there's no sense that, I mean, I think well, one of the criticisms I saw or one of the things after uh, Go go Kill a Watchman, whatever, when it came out, <laughs> people were saying Atticus is racist. And I'm like, people, in Mockingbird, show me some evidence that he isn't. Right. I mean, he's a nice man. He he believes in justice and he has principles. And I think, I think in the way that he adheres to those principles in difficult, challenging times. Remember that he didn't ask for this case, by the way. Right. He was given, he may have asked for the case if he was given the opportunity to, we don't know, but he was given this case and under difficult times, he adhered to his principles and he had integrity and he, 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 he stood up for that. That is a role model, but as a role model of fighting racism, we need to up our game because, because that was, that's where I kept running into. I kept being shocked that Atticus was not a crusader really from what, from what I'd, I'd heard about him. And again, this is not, I think Atticus is a great guy and he's yeah. a great character. Um, and I actually think Atticus, the character is probably more believable and more real. And you see him change over the course of the book. That's really important too. It's, it's not a lot, but I, you know, I could point to places in the book where they're, Oh, well he talks differently now, or he reacts to these questions differently. I think Atticus, going th- after going through the experiences of Mockingbird, is different than Atticus at the beginning of the book. And that's really important. Um, but anyway, I, so that, that is my problem. I, I feel like this is the great American novel about racism, and specifically Atticus is the icon of the good white man fighting racism, is, 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 ra- is embarrassing. Right. Well, <laughs> Actually. I think that that is a totally valid point. I I do think that it's maybe important to to keep Atticus in sort of his his context, his historical space. I mean, 1930s Alabama, the Civil War was still really fresh. It wasn't that long ago that black people only counted as three fifths of a person. Right. You're and, absolutely and right. And it was way before the civil rights movement. But at the same time, I, I think you could find examples of educated people who were able to see beyond that. Atticus is a state legislator. I mean, you could write a book where he is the crusader, right? You could write a book that wouldn't contradict Mockingbird because we just don't know. She just doesn't give us any evidence. Maybe in the political forum, maybe he is working for real change. Maybe behind the scenes, he is, is helping to fund the school or something like that. I wonder if his real activism isn't anything that he does, but the kids that he raises. I mean, because I could see Jim or, or Scout, but I mean, spe- specifically Jim. I mean, he, he seems very affected by everything that happens. He seems like a person who would go on to fight for civil rights. He seems like a person who would embrace that movement and really want to be a part of it. And maybe having Atticus as his dad, it's kind of like the stepping stone t- to that. 
Yes, and that's all good. But for an icon, he needed to do more. Yes. No, I agree. I I mean, do you think that I'm misreading the culture? Do you think that I'm giving too much status to like Atticus as the great heroic white man that we can all look up because he fought racism? Right, because we all see what Gregory Peck like in his staunch standing up for the rights of people. And that is not what Atticus does in the book. That's not who he is. He's he's a good man who tries to do the right thing. But like so many white Southerners in the 1930s, like he's way out of touch with what that right thing would be. Right, right. So I'm just saying that that I I, I guess I agree with this. I, I, it's a great novel. It's a great novel. People should read it. It should be in the canon, the American canon. Um, but I think maybe we need to let go of Atticus as our example of as as that icon, you know, we need to up our game. <laughs> right, because this is a great novel about racism. But I it is. think that Atticus Finch is the hero of a no- the novel about racism. And I also don't think that it was necessarily ever intended to be the story of the good white man fighting racism, right? I think it's a story of Maycomb. It's a story of Maycomb and Scout and Jim and Atticus. And and that is is wonderful in and of itself, it doesn't need to be anything more than that. Right. It's a town that created Harper Lee and Truman Capote. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And it's a great t- I would like to go back. I would like to re I mean, not in the Watchmen book, but I'm I mean, I would if there was like like another way to revisit that town and to see Miss Maudie and to to find I mean, you know, I I would like to spend time in that town. Um, but I'll tell you what I did do is um along you know, back when I when I read these essays a few years ago about having problems with Mockingbird, one of the essays essays I read suggested as an alternative reading um, "Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry," a great book by Mildred Taylor, which I had never read. Um, and I it came out in '76. I didn't read it as a child. I didn't read it as an adult. And I put off reading. It's been on my to read list for years because, gosh, it's going to be another tough book to read. But it's really interesting the parallels between it and Mockingbird. It's set in 1930s Mississippi. It's narrated by a young black girl. Um, it's her coming of age story where she's having to learn um, uh, unpleasant truths about her community. Spe- um, specifically, uh, her older brother is the one that really has to confront them and gets caught up in them. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, she has a very close relationship with her father. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of really interesting parallels, but here the black community and particularly this black family, the black Logan family is up front and center. They are not, you know, in Mockingbird, every only time we hear about the black community, they are being acted upon, right? They are enduring what the white community does to them. This book is about how do you live under those circumstances and how do you keep your self-respect and what lines do you draw and what kind of risk you know, are you willing to accept? And it's a really, really good book. I am upset with myself that I didn't read it earlier. It is Um, a gorgeous book, but maybe you read it exactly the right time and place because in contrast to Mockingbird, maybe that's exactly where you should read it. Well, it was really interesting. There's an Atticus figure in the book. There is a white lawyer who helps the black community when he can and um, who is a man of, of, you know, he actually puts himself in harm's way to stop a lynching at one point. And um, he helps them financially. But at one point, one of the black characters, you know, all of all of the 
drama in the book is kind of kicked off when um, white people um, burn three black men. They set them on fire and uh, one of them dies and then two of them uh, stay alive in horrifically maimed, you know, condition. And so the, the, the white lawyer is talking to this, this black family, the Logan family, and he talks about how I really want to, you know, I want to help. I want to support you to not shop at the store run by the people that, that did, that, that committed the crime, that set the men on fire. And, you know, one of the black men says, well, why don't you prosecute them then, basically? And they all just kind of laugh, right? Because he's never going to do that, right? Because his, right. Hey, nobody's going to do that. And he, and, and legitimately, he probably, he, he wouldn't get anywhere. But I think that's something that's pointed out. I mean, it's it's pointed out there that even the white people who want to help only go so far. Right. Right. And um, anyway, I thought it was a great book. I am running out. I'm going to read the whole all of her books about the Logan family because they are a wonderful family. Um, and I guess what I what I really regret is that this is something I could have brought into my homeschool and I didn't. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, you still my can. you still have two. I still have two. One of them only like for half a year. Um, but you know, I wish I'd read. I wish I'd kind of figured this stuff out 15 years ago. Because as my as my daughter Elizabeth said, we read a lot of stories about British children frolicking. Um, <laughs> okay, and of course, those are white upper class children because they're the only ones that can frolic. Said about British. I love British children okay. frolicking. Yes, but maybe. But I I don't know if we ever read. I mean. In my library, I have my home library, a few books um, written by people of color with people of color as a protagonist. We never did those as read alouds. And now I feel like I need to catch up. You know, I anyway, I wish I'd figured this out 15 years ago. I wish I had done this in my homeschool better because, you know, they're not getting it in schools. I mean, if you want to be depressing for a minute, I was trying to think after reading Mockingbird, which I did not have to read in school and uh, Roll of Thunder. I was trying to think if any of my required reading throughout my educational career, if I'd ever had to read anything written by a person of color or with a person of color as a protagonist. And I couldn't come up with anything. Did you read Invisible Man? We read that junior year. We No, I never had to read that. Philip said Lord Jim, but I don't remember Lord oh, Jim. Oh, but Lord Jim is like such colonialist. Well, that's what I was thinking, that even if it's there, it's bad. Yeah, it's highly um, problematic. Um, and then I asked Karen, you know, my daughter, who's a, a sophomore in high school. So she's been in high school for a year and a half. I said, have you ever been assigned anything? Oh, I'm sure I read poems. I think I probably read like short pieces, but like right, a novel, like, you know, written by a person of color or with a personal color of conch of as the protagonist. And she said, no. And we went through the entire list. She has not read in a year and a half. She's not read one book written by a woman. Oh my gosh. Or one book with a woman as the protagonist, unless you count Antigone. <laughs> I guess you can count Antigone. I mean, if you go through the whole list, no women. Wow. No women. It's, and she says it's all she comes home. It's another story about, she's doing Lord of the Flies. Last year they did a separate piece. She's like, it's another story about British prep school white boys. And um, and most of the books she's read have been by British authors. Almost all of them. There's maybe, She had to read Stein, uh, Steinbeck and Bradbury. And I think she read Vonnegut. Anyway. Well, um, I mean, those are all great books. That, these are all great books. These are all books. Except these are possibly a separate piece, which I don't I'm know. not a huge fan of Lord of the Flies, but I still think you should read it. It's a, I, it's a, it's an important, 
they're all canon books. They're all good. And they're in the canon for a reason. But the fact that she's been a year and a half and there's not, I don't, and she's not gonna because they're going to do Shakespeare for the rest of the year. I think she's not going to have read a book written by a, a woman author. That's insane. I mean, that's, I don't even know if Thomas had to in his entire, my oldest son in his entire high school career. We should I'll have to ask him at the school. For and the people, the people who teach the, you know, Karen actually said, anyway, so, so yeah, so that's depressing, right? So, so I could have made a real difference in my homeschool career by being proactive and bringing in and deliberate and bringing in books about all of these different kind of diverse books. And I didn't. And one of the reasons I didn't was because it was going to be hard. It's hard to read these stories about people, the yeah. violence and it is the, hard. And the, you know, just, it, it is really, really hard. And I'm, I'm embarrassed about that personally. And I just feel like that's something that I really need to change. Again, going into the next four years, you know, I have to be able to, to look at this and be, not be okay with it, but to, it being hard is not nearly a good enough excuse. So anyway, so I went to the Credit Scott King Awards and I, put a 50 books on my to read list <laughs> or something like that. But, um, but yeah, so, so if you're going to read Mockingbird side by side, that's what I'm going to do for my last kid. He's going to have to read Mockingbird and Roll of Thunder. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah, learn from us and our homeschooling mistakes. We make enough for everybody. You can borrow right. them and not make that's them. Right. Bring diversity into your homeschool because they are not going to get it almost certainly in the rest of their education. That is so sad. Not a woman author. Nope, not 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 a one. Well, in happier things, uh, for our next podcast, we're not doing an assigned book. Instead, Suzanne and I are going to talk about all the books that we want to get for Christmas and Hanukkah, respectively. <laughs> <They'll> probably <laughs> I guess feel- I could give you a book for Hanukkah, and you could give me a book for Christmas. That would be that would be, that would be fine. I will take it. People want to give me books, <laughs> whatever excuse right, you like. Us books. I'm fine with that. So if there's a book that you love that you think should be on our uh, Chrismica book wish list, uh, <laughs> just an email. You can always reach us at podcast at homeschoollifemag.com. We really love to get mail from you. And Suzanne loves it when you tweet her. I, I don't tweet. know. She's, have, you, have you successfully like responded to a tweet yet? I retweeted a tweet. Oh, my gosh. I responded and retweeted one. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> So email us or tweet Suzanne or you can tweet us, but I'll, you'll have to rely on Shelly to tell me that you tweeted us. <laughs> and I guess that does it for this actually on time, on schedule episode of the podcast with Suzanne and Amy back from our pillow fort hiding and into the real world. Um, we will be back in a fortnight with more conversation about the places where home, school, and life intersect. And we're so thankful for you, our listeners. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.